Hi, welcome to the second location. You're here with me, Holly, and we're going to continue to explore the conviction of Tommy Ziegler. In this episode, we're going to go over some DNA testing results and some of Tommy's appeals and just some general questions that I can't let go out of my mind about what actually happened the night of the murders. So first, recall that Tommy was convicted in 1976. And he has never had much success on the appellate level. He has appealed and appealed, but he has never been given a new trial, despite how clearly flawed his first trial was. Death warrants were issued for Tommy in 1982 and 1986, and he actually came within hours of being executed. As time passed, Tommy was running out of legal options. But then he read about DNA in the newspaper, and all of a sudden, Tommy Ziegler had hope again. He immediately saw how DNA testing, how it could be applied in his situation, you know, how it could save him. Tommy understood the power of DNA testing early. Before you ever heard of anyone being exonerated by DNA, Tommy had thought of it. DNA, of course, was initially used to convict people of crimes, but Tommy realized that if DNA can be used to put a guilty man in prison, then it surely could be used to set an innocent man free. And Tommy was right. But the legal representatives for the state of Florida have fought all of his requests for DNA testing. The state is arguing that the finality of a decision is more important than finding out if a man on death row is innocent. But you have to wonder, does the finality of a jury's decision have any value if it was the wrong decision? Sadly, in Florida, it does. Because Florida leads the way in sending innocent men to death row in this country. Since 1973, 190 people on death row have been found to be factually innocent and released from prison. 190 in the whole country. And a whopping 30 of those condemned were men incarcerated in Florida. Think of that. Of 190, 30 of them are from one state. That means that one state is really screwing things up. But it's even worse than you think because Florida fights DNA testing for condemned men. And of the 30 men released from death row in Florida, only three were found to be innocent based on DNA testing. All the others had to prove their innocence other ways. I mean, holy shit, if they would let these men on death row get DNA testing, could you even imagine what Flora's error rate in applying the death penalty would be? It'd be astronomical. They already have the highest rate of falsely imprisoning people on death row. And they have perhaps the most limited scheme in awarding these people DNA testing. It doesn't make sense. Unless you're trying to hide stuff and cover up the bad work that you did. I mean, I guess it makes sense then. Florida has probably the most limited access to DNA testing for those already convicted. It's especially sad because the authors of the bill that created access to post-conviction DNA testing say that the law was intended to give prisoners access to testing, but it has been read in the almost complete opposite way. Now, in Florida, to get post-conviction DNA testing, you have to be able to show that test results would show actual innocence, not just create reasonable doubt or, say, disprove the state's theory of the case that was used at trial. That's not enough. It can't just be, oh, a jury wouldn't have found him guilty with this DNA testing, with this evidence. It's not, it's not the standard for DNA testing. It is you have to show actual innocence. In practice, this means that if there was a murder that didn't involve a sexual assault, then you're not going to get post-conviction DNA testing. I mean, it's oversimplified, but not by that much. And even then, honest to God, in Florida, a lot of times when they you 
they do DNA testing where there has been a sexual assault and a murder and it comes back not to be the person that's on death row, they still argue there was like an unknown rapist accomplice, you know. So even then, they don't want to let these people out of jail when they're clearly innocent. But my point is, this law was written to give people post-conviction access to DNA testing. And the court system has read it as the complete opposite. Now, Tommy fought for DNA testing for decades with the state consistently arguing against testing. But Tommy was finally granted limited DNA testing in 2002. Blood on Tommy's shirt and his pants and blood stains on Charlie May's pants were tested. Now remember back to the trial, the state had argued that the type A blood that was all over Tommy's shirt had come from Perry Edwards, Tommy's father-in-law. The state argued that Tommy had held Perry's head under his arm, almost like in a headlock, as Tommy beat the older man to death. Perry had a gunshot wound to his ear, which, you know ears, they, they bleed a lot. So that was, the thinking was that the gunshot wound to the ear, the ear was bleeding a lot, and the state argued that that was blood probably from Perry's ear that was all over Tommy's shirt as he beat the older man. But there were three people at the crime scene with type A blood. Eunice her father, Perry, and Charlie Mays. Now, when the DNA test results come back, it wasn't Perry Edwards' blood on Tommy's shirt. The type A blood on Tommy's shirt belonged to Charlie Mays. Now, this should have changed everything for Tommy. The DNA results completely support Tommy's account of that night. Tommy had described fighting two men in the back area of the store, one who he thought might have been Charlie Mays. So, Tommy having Charlie's blood on him fits with Tommy's account of the attack. Now, the DNA results on Charlie May's blood-soaked pants showed that May's pants were covered in Perry Edwards' blood. But you gotta remember, according to the state's theory, Perry Edwards had been murdered at least 15 to 20 minutes before Charlie Mays ever entered the store. So Perry's blood on the floor should have been dry by the time that Charlie arrived. Even the state's own blood expert, old Herb McDonald, he said to suggest that Charlie Mays was in the store earlier would mean that Charlie had done nothing as the others were murdered. But I think we all know what Charlie was doing when Eunice and her parents were being killed. He was in the process of shooting and physically attacking Perry Edwards. That's why Charlie's maze pants and shoes were caked with Perry Edwards' blood. The DNA supports the idea that Charlie Mays killed Perry Edwards. So let's just let those DNA results sink in because they are important and I think they should have resulted in a new trial for Tommy because the tests show that Charlie Mays participated in the murders that night and the blood shows this because Charlie's blood fell on top of Perry's blood and the blood didn't mix which means that Perry's blood was dry when it came into contact with Charlie's blood meaning that Charlie was attacked at least 15 to 20 minutes after Perry. Now we know that the blood all over Charlie's pant legs was Perry's and not Charlie's like the state had argued at trial. That means that Charlie was there when Perry was attacked and Charlie was there long enough that the blood on his shoes had dried because there are no bloody footprints around Charlie's body on the floor. When Charlie was killed, the blood on his shoes was dry, which again would have taken 15 to 20 minutes. Now here's what I think. Charlie wasn't immediately attacked after walking into the store, like the state said at trial. Instead, Charlie was lying in wait in the store when suddenly Eunice and her parents entered and they were murdered. And then 15 to 20 minutes later, perhaps longer, Tommy shows up and he is attacked. But Tommy never 
catches a break. Even when the DNA results came in that showed that the state's theory of the case was completely and utterly wrong, Tommy doesn't get a new trial because the judge that had decided to finally grant Tommy's request for DNA testing, well, that judge had been transferred to a different court and a new judge was assigned to Tommy's case. And this new judge didn't think the DNA results were sufficient to get Tommy a new trial. And I truly think if it hadn't been for the changing of judges, that Tommy would have got a new trial in 2002. Because that judge that granted the request for DNA testing, he must have thought that those results would have a probative value or he wouldn't have granted the test. Now this second judge replaces that guy. He says it doesn't matter what the results are because it doesn't prove his actual innocence. But the other judge had to have thought if the results came back this way, it would show actual innocence because why would he have granted the testing? So basically a second judge is saying it doesn't ever matter what the testing is because you can't ever prove that you're actually innocent with DNA, according to him, which I also think it's incredibly wrong. I get it. There's no sexual assault in this case, but there's different pieces of evidence at that crime scene that could be tested, especially with advanced DNA testing that would show the pattern of blood and how things unfolded that night to a certain degree. So now... With the DNA results, you know, not supporting the state's theory of the case that they had used at trial, the state came up with a new theory that once again isn't supported by the evidence. Now remember how Detective Fry went to great lengths to find anybody that would say that Tommy was a homosexual? Well, that theory about Tommy being gay was not introduced into evidence at trial. You know, it's hearsay. Instead, the state claimed that Tommy's motive for the murders was the insurance proceeds. But when the case is on appeal, Jeff Ashton tries to impart a homosexual motive for the murders when he implied that Tommy committed a homosexual and necrophilic act on Charlie May's corpse. Yeah, you just heard that. Jeff Ashton tried to establish that Tommy performed oral sex on Charlie May's dead body. Now, the expert he was questioning refused to agree with Ashton, and the point was, basically went nowhere. But it shows you what Jeff Ashton thinks of homosexuals. But I want to emphasize that I personally don't think that homosexuals are necessarily necrophiles. Call me a progressive, but I don't see the connection. Also, what would be the purpose of blowing a dead guy? I just don't know how someone would want that to play out. Like, what does success look like in that situation? Seriously, I have no idea. I mean, I just don't really understand this allegation that potentially Tommy, you know, blew a dead guy. I mean, how do you even know when you're done? I would assume that necrophiles have penetrative sex with their victims and do not perform oral sex on their victims. Now, the well-known necrophiles out there, you got your Dahmer, Bundy, and Kemper, none of them did mouth stuff on their victims. It just isn't done. But that didn't stop the state from acting like Tommy blew a dead guy. But I want to stop talking about this. It's disrespectful to Tommy and Shirley. But it's also, it is what the state tried to imply. But let's just move on. Now, after getting favorable DNA results back in 2002 and still not being able to get a new trial, Tommy has continued to push for more DNA testing using more advanced techniques. And this year, 2023, Tommy was finally able to get what he has been fighting for for all these years. Over 150 pieces of evidence are being submitted to a private lab for advanced DNA testing. All costs are being covered by Tommy's appellate team, and I cannot wait for the results. Oh, and I just want to point out that every step along the way, the state has fought against Tommy getting this testing. Now, 
Monique Worrell, the state attorney for the Winter Garden area where the murders occurred. Now, she agreed to release the evidence for additional DNA testing in 2021. She thought that Tommy's request for DNA analysis had value. She saw that and she agreed to the testing. But Florida's Attorney General, Ashley Moody, tried to block the testing. Yes, you heard me there. Tommy finally gets someone to agree with him to permit more DNA testing. The advanced nature that could really, you know, clear up a lot of questions about the murders. And the state attorney general says, no, I don't care what the other prosecutor agreed to. We're not doing this. In a nutshell, that's what she's saying. The state attorney for the Winter Garden area, not the attorney general, Monique Worrell would have needed approval from the attorney general of Florida to enter into this agreement. So, like I said, the Florida's attorney general tried to block the testing, but luckily the courts disagreed with Florida's attorney general. And despite her attempts to block testing, she did delay testing for almost two years. Two years that Tommy could have been free, and that's pathetic. But the results are coming out soon, and I can't hardly wait. The evidence is in the hands of the lab at this point, so testing, as we speak, most likely underway. Okay, so years after Tommy's trial, hell, it's not years, it's decades after his trial, Tommy got a new supporter. Her name is Lynn Marie Cardi, and she's a private investigator who works tirelessly and for free for Tommy. She has created a new theory that perhaps Perry Edwards Jr., and that's Eunice's brother, was the mastermind behind the murders. And Perry Jr. does seem to have played a hidden role in the investigation of the crimes. Now, William Duane, he was one of Tommy's appellate lawyers, and he found out from Detective Fry the identity of one of the detective's confidential sources. See, Fry always had these two confidential informants where Fry got all this hearsay information and then smeared Tommy's reputation with all these unfounded lies about his homosexuality, cruelty to animals, an attempt to murder his own father, and Eunice being unhappy in the marriage. All of these horrible accusations were unverifiable hearsay, and they were made by an accuser who always remained confidential. Now, we don't know if all these were coming from the same person or which ones came from whom, but we do know that Detective Fry always had two confidential sources that he protected. And Detective Fry thought this person was reliable, but really, I think Fry probably thought this informant was reliable because the informant was saying stuff that he wanted to hear. Well, Dwayne, Tommy's attorney, found out from Fry that one of these informants was Robert Thompson, the neighboring chief of police from Oakland, who his ass just keeps popping up everywhere in this case, which of course is outside of his jurisdiction. Chief Thompson vouched for Charlie Mays. I mean, he just got, he just knew that Charlie Mays, a known gambler, would never have been involved in a robbery. Not only is he a big supporter of Charlie Mays, this guy's just everywhere on this case, you know? I'm very concerned about Chief Thompson's role in the investigation, maybe even in the murders. But anyway, it's my understanding that Tommy's investigator, Lynn Marie Cardi, supports the theory that Perry Jr. told either Fry or Thompson the bullshit story about Eunice finding Tommy having sex with a dude. This is connected to evidence that Cardi has uncovered that Perry Jr. is the second confidential informant that Fry refused to name, but, but also uses a source for a lot of incorrect information. See, I just thought, really, that Fry was lying about having confidential informants so he could introduce lies and rumors as evidence, but the Perry Jr.'s confidential informant idea makes sense. Also, Perry Jr. was seen talking to Chief Thompson at the hospital where Tommy was receiving treatment and maybe this is when Thompson first heard about Tommy being gay. Maybe he heard it from Perry Jr. It's a possibility. 
but it's hard to decide who the source of the rumor is. But I tend to believe Vicky's account. Now, Donald Vicky, he told a story about Chief Thompson being the original source. For I hadn't spoken to Perry Jr. at this point. I think it's likely that Chief Thompson was the first person that floated the homosexuality as motive. And when Fry asked Perry Jr. about it, he leapt on it. I mean, it seems like it's very, it's very, it seems like it's well established that Perry Jr. really disliked Tommy. And now there was a motive that, you know, conservative Tommy would find embarrassing. And I think Perry Jr. might have liked that, you know, embarrassing the guy that he absolutely hates. You know, painted his brother-in-law as a murderous homosexual. There are other reasons why Perry Jr. would be very interested in Tommy Ziegler being convicted of these murders. So in the last few years, a new theory has emerged, largely due to the investigative work, like I said, of Lynn Marie Cardi. She has really done some amazing stuff. She caught Donald Fry in a perjurous lie when she tracked down a man named Robert Foster. Now this guy, his name appeared on the original arrest warrant for Tommy. And now this is where it gets crazy. So hold on tight. The name Robert Foster appears numerous times on Tommy's arrest warrant. And Robert Foster, he is basically described as witnessing all of the events that later Felton Thomas will testify about. It's almost as if Felton Thomas, his role, he replaces what Robert Foster's role had been as described in the uh, arrest warrant. For about three weeks after the murders, it is Robert Foster's name that appeared in the newspaper article about the murder. There was no mention of Felton Thomas. It was always Robert Foster that witnessed the events on the night of the murders. It's Robert Foster that's in the arrest warrant and it's Robert Foster that for three weeks his name is coming up repeatedly in the papers. And the police never reached out to the papers to correct that this Robert Foster was not their witness. Now eventually Donald Fry writes out a new arrest report that he titled Homicide Report even though it is basically a rewrite of the arrest report with the name Robert Foster removed and replaced with the name Felton Thomas. When Fry was asked about this change, while he was under oath, Fry said that Robert Foster didn't exist and it was just a typographic error. That's one weird typo. It's not like he said Thomas Felton instead of Felton Thomas, which I could understand because it did seem like that shithead couldn't even get his own name right. It's a completely different name that appears repeatedly throughout the document. I mean, Robert Foster, Felton Thomas. They are different names. It's not like, oh, both of the men have the name Robert or something. There's no overlap there. I don't think that's a normal typo. A typo is when you spell something wrong, not when you put down a completely different name for somebody. According to Detective Fry, this Robert Foster did not exist. He was just a typo. Well, Lynn Marie Carty actually was able to track down this Robert Foster. This typo was a real life man who lived in the Orlando area at the time of the murders. And he had a long criminal record that included multiple escapes from prison and a conviction for attempting to steal TVs from a store. Yeah, you heard it. This guy is a convicted TV from store thief and his name appeared all over the paperwork that authorized Tommy's arrest. Now, I'm not sure exactly what all he was convicted of and what all Robert Foster was charged with. I know he was definitely charged with theft of TVs from a store. I don't know if he was convicted of that. I do know he escaped from prison and he does have a long criminal record that does seem to include theft. Now, Mary Beach, that's Edward Williams' landlord, 
Now, she claims that a tall, big-bellied black man named Robert Foster played softball with her own husband and Charlie Mays. Remember, Charlie Mays is a huge softball player. I see, remember that, and I don't know if I ever mentioned that before, but yeah, he was real big into softball. So, Charlie Mays, according to this Mary Beach, who knows Edward Williams as well, says that Robert Foster played softball with Charlie Mays. So according to this landlady, Charlie Mays and Robert Foster knew each other, and she should know. Hell, Mary was the umpire for the softball league. I wish she'd kept records. Wouldn't that be something to find? It would be. Like, oh, God, but yeah, that would be long gone by now. Only a hoarder would have that type of information at this point, let's be honest. You know, records from a softball games played in 1974. <laughs> no one's got that. But I think that'd be like the one thing you could do to tie these two together, you know, on paper that makes some sense. But even then, I think the state would argue that it was a different Robert Foster. I mean, who the hell knows what they'd say. But it gets worse, because apparently on that Christmas Eve, in the night of the murders, across the street from the furniture store, there was an attempted robbery of a golf station around six o'clock that night. A mother was working and her daughter was in the store with her, you know, passing the time with her mom when the attempted robbery occurred. When Lynn Marie Carty talked to them, the daughter told her how years later she and her mom had been watching the movie The Green Mile and they saw the actor Michael Clark Duncan and they both agreed that the guy that tried to rob them that night years ago looked just like that actor. I mean, it's a distinct look, okay? So Lynn Marie, she tapes a picture up of Duncan alongside her computer and starts digging through arrest records in Florida and she finds the guy that looks a lot like Duncan. And this guy? His name is Robert Foster. Lynn Marie takes the guy's picture to the daughter and the daughter identifies Robert Milton Foster, the, the guy that Lynn Marie found in the arrest records, as the guy that tried to rob her and her mother that night. Now it just keeps getting weirder because the police were called to the scene of the robbery that night, but no police report was made. Now let's ask ourselves, what officer responded to that call? Oakland Police Chief Robert Thompson. And once again, his ass was outside of his jurisdiction. It's like Oakland didn't even have a chief of police that night. That guy just could not get out of Winter Garden, even though he was the only officer on duty that night in Oakland. I mean, why does this guy's name keep coming up? He's across the street at the KFC between 8.30 and 8.50. He's the first guy at the store's front door when Tommy calls for help. He's the only officer that interviewed the interview witnesses from the Winter Garden Inn, which is located right behind the furniture store. Well, he may not be the only one, but he was the first one to do it, to interrogate those people. And now he is the officer that failed to make a police report on the robbery that occurred directly across the street from the furniture store on the night of the murders. Additionally, when Robert Foster is added to the mix, his existence explains what appeared to be a major lapse of judgment on the part of the investigators. Detective Don Fry has held for years that Charlie's maze van was never processed for fingerprints. Now, this seems like a huge oversight. If the fingerprints of, say, Edward Williams were found inside Charlie's van, that would go to support the defense's theory that they were, you know, in a conspiracy together and working against Tommy that night. So the van should should have been tested for fingerprints. Also say like if you find Felton Thomas's prints in there, that supports the theory that Thomas was with Charlie Mays on the evening of the murders. So there's a lot of reasons why Charlie Mays's fan should have been printed. It should have been done. Now this case was full of evidentiary fuck-ups. Let me list off a few. 
Fingerprint evidence was destroyed by the FBI. Blood samples were not completely tested before they degraded. The results of gunshot residue tests on Tommy's pants were hidden from the defense. Edward Williams' clothing was withheld for the defense for so long that the test the defense performed on the clothes could not be completed before the trial ended. Evidence was lost. For example, the second tooth found at the crime scene. And there were clear incidents of suppression of evidence, like the Jellison tape and the statements from Ken and Linda Roach. And there were accusations of witness intimidation and pretty well-founded accusations of investigators planting evidence, such as the blue towel in the cabinet and the slug in the orange grove. It's like anything that could go wrong for Tommy, well, it happened. And that's being generous to the state because I really think that every cruel, underhanded trick in the book was pulled on Tommy. So was the failure to fingerprint the van a mistake? On its face value, failure to take fingerprints from Charlie May's van, to me, it looks like it could be an oversight by an investigation led by a myopically focused, narrow-minded man. But with everything else that they did to Tommy, I have to wonder if the investigators are hiding evidence. Did they process that van for fingerprints and find something that they didn't want to disclose to the defense? Well, Lynn Marie Cardi found an evidence processing card that shows that Charlie May's van was processed for fingerprints. But Detective Fry denied this for years. Why? Was it because they found Robert Foster's fingerprints in that van? And as a convicted felon, his prints would be in the system? The state didn't want evidence of a convicted felon with a history of stealing TVs being present at the crime scene. So is it possible that the state didn't want evidence of a convicted felon with a history of stealing TVs being present at the crime scene that night? So is it possible that all evidence of that van being tested for prints and the results, well, they had to be hidden from the defense because the results would have shown potentially that Robert Foster was there that night? Or I guess it wouldn't necessarily be that night, but would show that Robert Foster existed and had touched Charlie May's van? Well, who the hell knows? But there is evidence that the van was processed for prints, but we just don't know what they found out. Robert Foster could be a red herring in all of this. He could be completely unrelated. But all the shady shit that the state has done and the investigators have done, it calls into question so many other things. And it's entirely possible that Robert Foster has absolutely nothing to do with this. But who the hell knows? And who can you trust at this point? Now, with all of her investigations, Lynn Marie Cardi has developed a new theory and a new suspect, Eunice's brother, Perry Edwards Jr. Now, the man definitely had a motive. His parents owned land in Florida that had been held by the family for generations. And I think it was Timberland and it was valued at $3 million. And Perry Jr., he inherited all of this land. Because Eunice had also died and Tommy is convicted of her murder, Perry Jr. inherits his parents' entire estate, valued at more than $3 million. Now, Perry Jr. did not attend Eunice's funeral. Bit of a red flag there, right? Instead, he took his parents' will and he returned it to the courthouse and started probate of the estate that day. The Edwards' parents had removed the will from the courthouse and reportedly took it with them when they went to visit Tommy and Eunice for Christmas. Tommy has claimed that his in-laws had asked him to become the executor of their estate. They wanted to remove Perry Jr.'s executor and replace him with Tommy, but Tommy had declined. He didn't want to stir up trouble within the family. Tommy knew that a move like this would upset Perry Jr., and Tommy just wasn't interested in that. I would like to point out a lot of people emphasize this Tommy being 
the potentiality of Tommy being placed in charge of the estate, meaning like that Tommy's going to get their estate when they pass away. But that's not the case. He'd be made executor, which means he would be paid for that role in the event of their death. But it's not like he's made their heir. You know, I think people are confusing two different terms. He would be the administrator of their estate. And yes, he would get paid for that, but it would be tens of thousands. And people say, why would they make Tommy the executor of their estate instead of, you know, their son? Their son, they were having some trouble with him, apparently. Um, and I prefer myself. I don't know why they wouldn't have made Eunice the executor of their estate, other than this is the South in the 1970s. And I just don't know if a lady could be trusted with all that responsibility. That was wrong of me. But also, wasn't it kind of right of me? But yes, so there's allegations about this, and it's hard to tell what really is the truth. I would like to know that when the police searched Tommy and Eunice's house, did they find... Well, first off, I'm not sure if Perry and Virginia were staying in the Ziegler household. All I want to know is, when they went through Perry and Virginia's things, did they find the will down in Florida with them? If it was found in their possessions in Florida, then yeah, I think that is excellent evidence that they planned on having Tommy try to be, you know, try to put him in as the executor. Tommy's attorneys before the trial had another firm conduct a record search to find out exactly what property the Edwards owned at the time of their deaths. But the search only turned up their home and vehicles because the firm only searched in their home state of Georgia. The valuable property that they owned was in Florida. This motive was not known at the time of Tommy's trial. And this is very interesting to me. And I'm surprised slightly that Tommy didn't realize that they owned this amount of property. I mean, he'd been married to Eunice for multiple years. You would think he would know that she has family property in uh, Florida. But he might not even have thought to mention it. I mean, it's hard to tell. Here's the important thing about Perry Jr.'s motive and the estate. If Tommy is guilty of the murders then he doesn't inherit anything from Eunice's family's estate. If Tommy is innocent, then under Georgia estate law, and that's where Eunice's parents live, so Georgia law applies. If Tommy is innocent, then the rule pertaining to simultaneous death applies, and Eunice would be treated as if she had survived her parents in terms of the will, meaning that Eunice would presumably inherit half of her parents' estate. But since Eunice passed, Tommy would inherit Eunice's share of her parents' estate. But if Tommy is guilty of the murders, Tommy can't inherit anything from the people that he murdered. And the whole estate will go to Eunice's brother, Perry Jr. So Perry Jr. stands to benefit greatly if Tommy is convicted. Now, I don't know what that means. Does that mean, to me, I see more that Perry has motive to get Tommy convicted. I don't know if he actually planned these murders or if once he saw that Tommy was going down for him, he tried to, you know, make sure that happened so he could shore up the entire estate for himself. And in all honesty, if Perry thinks that Tommy was behind this, you know, I agree completely with him. I just find it weird that, you know, people, he wasn't open with this, that he thought Tommy was guilty at the time of the trial. Because it's interesting, in Philip Finch's book, there is no mention really of Perry Jr.'s involvement in the trial. Very little, very little comes up about him. But years later, Lynn Marie Carty, she has made Perry Jr. largely the focus of her investigation. Now here, there's like tons of questions at the end of all of this that I just have rattling around in my mind. And I don't know how to get them all out there, so we're just going to start getting them all out there, okay? One thing that bothers me was, why was Charlie Mays savagely beaten to death? 
was because he was the one that first encountered Eunice and her parents? I am confident that Mays would not have known who Eunice's parents were. He may have known Eunice, and he may not have. I'm not sure. Did Charlie start shooting, not realizing... Okay, so if Perry Edwards Jr. is behind these murders, and he has orchestrated this to have either Felton Thomas or Robert Foster, we don't know which one, and Shirley Mays and Edward Williams all involved in this crime, and we'll say this crime, if it's supposed to just be a hit on Tommy, when Eunice and her parents walk in, did Charlie perhaps start shooting, not realizing that he was murdering the sister and the parents of the man who hired him to kill Tommy? I don't believe that Eunice and her parents were ever the intended targets because there's a lot of debate online about whether Perry Jr. had planned to kill Eunice, his parents, and either set Tommy up for it or kill Tommy as well. But I wholeheartedly do not believe Eunice and her parents were targets, were, were targeted for murder that night because how would Perry Jr. have known they were going to be in the store that night and exactly when? Even if Perry Jr. knew about the Ziegler's giving the Edwards the gift of a reclining chair, he wouldn't know when they were going to pick it out. Perry Edwards Jr. didn't know his parents and his sister were going to the store that night because his goal was to kill Tommy. And if he had arranged with Edward Williams to be part of this, then he would know that Tommy was going to be in the store that night. So when Perry's family arrived and they were slaughtered, the goal of killing Tommy was altered. Perry had just put into action a plan to kill an enemy, Tommy, that resulted in the death of his own parents. Did this cause Perry to drop his original goal? Did this cause Perry to drop his original goal and just go into cover-up survival mode, all while in a state of shock and panic? Perhaps. Now, there's another thing that bothers me is I don't really think that Felton Thomas was ever in Curtis Dunaway's car with Charlie Mays and Tommy on Christmas Eve. The whole story just sounds so damn hanky. But even beyond that, Thomas describes a car parked in front of a truck in Tommy's driveway. Nowhere else, not Williams, not the Fickies, or Tommy, ever saw a car parked in front of a truck. So Felton can't accurately describe the scene outside Tommy's house. Is this because he was never there? Tommy had his truck parked in the spot that this car that Felton Thomas claimed was there was parked in. So it just wasn't possible. Thomas also described Tommy as wearing light-colored clothes when Tommy, in fact, was wearing a rust-colored shirt and dark red and blue check pattern pants. Thomas claimed that Tommy exited the garage at his home carrying a box, and Williams said Tommy's hands were empty when he left the garage. Williams and Thomas's accounts of Tommy's arrival at his house differ. Thomas said Tommy parked in the driveway and walked into the garage, never entering the house, while Williams' account has Tommy driving into the garage and running into his house. If this event actually happened, then why don't Thomas and Williams tell the same version of events? That, to me, calls into question Felton Thomas's testimony. I leave open the possibility that Felton Thomas met a man that night at the furniture store, a white man that he was told was Ziegler's. Thomas never met Tommy before. He had no idea what Tommy looked like other than to assume that he was white. This man could have been the mastermind behind this crime with a motive to get rid of Tommy. Perhaps a plan hatched by Eunice's brother to solely inherit the family estate. But no, I don't think so. He didn't know the parents were going to be there. He didn't know Eunice was going to be there. If this was a hit, it's a hit just exclusively on Tommy. So let me walk that back. Or it could be an entirely different man, completely unrelated to Perry Edwards Jr. It could be a man who wants to stop Tommy's attempts to interfere with the loan sharking in Winter Garden, or in general his do-good meddling that included Tommy taking the lead role in shutting down a hotel in the area that was used for a hub for drug dealing and prostitution. 
Now, if one determines that the motive to kill Tommy was a revenge killing based on jealousy, then the leading suspect is Perry Edwards Jr. If the motive to kill Tommy was to stop his interference in illegal activities in the area, then the brains behind the murder could possibly be a lone sharking or drug-involved criminal or corrupt law enforcement officer that was involved in and profited from these illegal activities. Tommy has been suspicious that there was an element of local law enforcement that protected these criminals and was involved, you know, in a small-time crime syndicate. Now, keep in mind, this is not the type of thing that Tommy needed to prove at trial. The burden of proof is on the state to show that Tommy was guilty. Tommy doesn't have to propose alternate theories of the murder, but after a conviction, the burden of proving one's innocent is thrust upon the convicted in all reality. It's sort of a, you say you're innocent, that the jury was wrong, well then prove it, which leads to theorizing and speculation about what could have happened. This is where we are today in this case. And while this is interesting to true crime fanatics and lovers of mysteries, it really places a tremendous burden on the convicted. Their burden should be showing that there was a defect in the legal process that resulted in an unfair trial. And the remedy typically would be a new trial. But we live in a world where we want the convicted to solve the crime, to tell us who the real killer was and prove it. So when I say it could have been Perry Jr. that orchestrated this, or local criminals, or corrupt cops behind the murders, this is all supposition, just guesses. They all could be wrong. All that is actually legally necessary for you to realize is that Tommy didn't get a fair trial, and at least he merits the DNA testing that he finally got approval for. Tommy doesn't have to find the real killers. That's not the role of the accused. Let's just leave that shit for OJ. Now, we're in the end zone of this episode and bouncing around in my mind. There are some things that I can't get past. And I just want anybody out there that's listening to think about these things with me. So, one of the things I keep thinking about is looking at the crime scene photographs of Charlie May's body. It is surprising the amount of blood on his pant legs. And we know today that that blood was Perry Edwards' blood. And the soles of his shoes are caked with blood too. But there are no bloody footprints around Charlie May's body, even though his shoes are caked with blood. How could that be? Either the blood was wiped up, the bloody shoe prints, or the blood on May's shoes was dry when he was attacked and beaten to death, which means that he was in the store long enough to get covered in Perry Edwards' blood and for the blood to dry before he was killed. This means that Shirley didn't just enter the store and get immediately attacked. He was in the store for a while at least 15 to 20 minutes after he got Perry's blood all over him. If Charlie was an innocent victim, why would he have been in the store that long? If there had been bloody shoe prints around Charlie's body, and let's say the killers wiped them away, what would be the purpose of doing this? And besides, luminol testing would have showed that the blood had been wiped up from that area. And I have never seen anywhere that luminol testing showed that shoe prints around Charlie's body had been cleaned up. So I have to go with the obvious. The blood on Charlie's shoes was dry when he was killed, which means he was in that store that night for a lot longer than the state has ever been willing to admit. Now let's think about this. If this is all Tommy concocted this as the crime to murder his family, get insurance money, and he just shoots himself as a cover, why with all those guns in that store would that man shoot himself with a 38 to the guts instead of the 22s that were available. Because there were a lot of guns there. I mean, there was even a little tiny Derringer. I mean, I think it would look suspicious if he'd only been shot with the Derringer, but I'll tell you what I wouldn't do if I was Tommy in this situation. And I was setting this all up framework. I first off would never shoot myself in the abdomen. 
And second, I wouldn't use a 38 for it. I would, I would use a 22 and I would shoot myself in the upper right part of my chest, like a shoulder shot. I would shoot myself in my arms, lower leg, nothing in the thigh, but I would not do a gut shot. And I sure as shit would use the lower caliber weapon. Listen to this. This one bothers me. The trading of the cars, the night of the murders with Curtis Dunaway. If we believe the state that Tommy had been planning these murders for a month, would he really trade cars with his employee and take his employee's car that was having troubles, mechanical problems, and give him his car that is working? Because what the hell would have happened if at any point, if Tommy's actually committing these crimes and driving back and forth between his house and the furniture store to the orange grove to all these places in this car that is having car troubles if that car had broken down and tommy's trapped in a broken down car with two people he's trying to set up for murder while there's three dead bodies back in the store i don't know why it makes no sense for tommy to have traded cars with curtis dunaway that night and take an unreliable car to do a back and forth driving to from crime scene murder the logic isn't there. The tooth. The missing tooth. There were two teeth at the crime scene. Only one person at the crime scene was recently missing a tooth. Who the hell's tooth was that that was lost? And actually lost from evidence. Someone walked out of that furniture store that night without a tooth. And we have no idea who it is related to the tooth there was a lots of shots fired at the scene i can't remember what they said did they say it was 38 i'd I, I have to go back and check but it was a lot of shots fired and a lot of casings were collected and they, a lot of casings and slugs were collected and they matched these things up except for one there was a 22 shell casing with no corresponding slug and i mean no corresponding slug i don't mean it was in a person's body they couldn't find it in the scene it wasn't in walls so there was a shot fired we have the casing for it. The casing for it exists, but there's no slug. Did someone walk out of that store on the night of those murders with a 22 caliber slug inside of them? Hell, it might be the same guy that's missing a tooth. Now this is one for you to ponder for a second. Remember how Tommy got to the furniture store that night? He rode along with Edward Williams. He did not drive separately to the furniture store. And this is according to Tommy's account and this is according to Edward Williams' account. The state even agrees with this. So, after committing all these murders, if everything had gone as planned, Tommy commits all these murders, and he has Edward Williams lying dead in that store, Charlie Mays, and even Felton Thomas will say, Tommy didn't drive to the store that night. How the hell does he get away from the crime scene? He can't drive Edward Williams' vehicle away. He has no way to leave. This is supposed to be a mastermind plan and the guy has no exit now if tommy had planned to kill his family then kill charlie mays and then kill edward williams thus framing the latter two men for the murders of his family what is tommy's plan after he kills williams does he just show up to the judge's party alone and begin wondering about aloud about where Eunice is, suggesting that he and his police buddies go and check out the store together, thus setting up a, a way to find the bodies? But wouldn't it be weird that the married couple didn't just show up to the party together? Yeah, I think that would be super weird. They were supposed to arrive with the police chief and his wife. But more important, Tommy rode to the furniture store with Edward Williams. Tommy didn't have a car at the store. He had no way to leave the scene. How was he going to get to the judge's party? Does that mean that Tommy 
always planned to shoot himself? Maybe. In the stomach with a 38 caliber gun? Not likely. If Tommy was really trying to set up Williams, why did Tommy tell Curtis Dunaway that he was meeting Williams that night to do some holiday deliveries? Outside of Williams, two other people knew that survived the night knew that Tommy was meeting Edward Williams to go to the furniture store. Tommy's mother and Curtis Dunaway. They all knew that Tommy was stopping by the store that night. Now this is a Holly original theory and I'm just throwing it out there and seeing if it sticks. But could it have been Perry who managed to shoot Charlie Mays earlier in the night during the first set of attacks? Charlie's gunshot wound, you know, it wasn't lethal. It was the beating that killed him. Is it possible that Charlie had already been shot before Tommy arrived at the store that night? I mean, Perry did have gunshot residue on his hands and it would explain how Charlie's blood got on Tommy. It doesn't explain how everything unfolded that night. It just adds more questions, but it does raise the issue of did the co-conspirators of Charlie Mays realize much earlier in the evening that Charlie Mays was not leaving that store alive that night. It augments things, we'll just say that. Now the last thing is still just rattling around in my old brain is, how could Tommy have begun planning for the murders to take place on the night of Christmas Eve, months earlier, if Tommy had no idea at the time that Eunice would be in the store that night? The state argued that Tommy had begun planning the murders by early December, when he first asked Edward Williams to make deliveries with him on Christmas Eve, after the store had closed. But at that time, Tommy had no idea that Eunice and her parents would be in the store that night. Eunice only went to the store after closing that night because their cat had had a sudden illness, and she took the cat to the vet's office. Eunice had originally planned to go to the store with her folks earlier that afternoon while the store was open to pick out the recliner. This was a last minute thing. If that cat had never gotten sick, Eunice and her parents would never have been there that night. I don't think Tommy could have planned this because it was unforeseen that Eunice would have ended up in the store that night. But the moment that Edward Williams was asked to meet Tommy at the store, the killers knew that Tommy was going to be there. And that's important because it truly really is only Tommy, in my opinion, that is a target here. Eunice and her parents were never supposed to be in the store that night. The cat getting sick, it just changed everybody's plans. And now, this is where I'm gonna leave you. But I promise I'll be back soon because we're gonna cover in what I think will be our last episode on the Tommy Ziegler trial and the Florida Furniture Store murders, my theories of what I think might have actually happened that night. I'd love to hear you guys and what you think actually could have happened as well.